There is, there is a famous story I would have thought was apocryphal, but I know it's not, that I, I'm sure you've heard, that when Laurence Olivier, in his older years, he made a film called Marathon Man. And he showed up one day, and there's, there's Dustin. Dustin is the quintessential American actor, but also the New York kind of ethnic actor. And he just looks ghastly. And, you know, and so Lawrence looks at him, and I'm like, my dear boy, my God, what happened to you? I feel so bad for you. And Dustin goes, well, you know what's apart, Larry? I haven't slept for four days, and I didn't change my clothes, and I didn't take a shower. He goes, I said, why, why, why not? It's the part. That's, I have to live the part. And Olivier steps back and looks at him and says, my dear boy, why don't you try acting? It's so much easier. <laughs> now, Joan Plowright told me that story, so I think it's true. Now, can I tell you what I feel about that story? Yes, sir. Yeah, I would love to hear that. And um, without any disrespect either to Olivier or Joan Plowright, but I think it says more about what Olivier failed to understand about the process of certainly film acting, if you can divide the two, than about um, Hoffman's uh, process by which he, he worked. And, and he could equally well have said that same thing to Montgomery Cliff, to James Dean, to Marlon Brando, Brando to, to Robert De Niro, Niro to, to Duval, and so on and so forth. But he's missing the point there. He's just missing the point. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, and as usual, drinking my fucking milkshake, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. I don't like milkshakes. Would you like something else instead? Can I show you something from the back? <laughs> sure. See a menu. On today's episode, Nakia and I are sitting down for a long overdue viewing of a film neither of us has seen. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson's 2007 American epic, There Will Be Blood. I feel like this is mission creep. I feel like I shouldn't have to watch a movie that you haven't seen because the point is that you are sharing movies with me that you have seen and love. And we have done that before. This I'm is ta- not I'm unprecedented. I'm that it's mission creep. For example, I... neither of us had seen Mamma Mia. And you remember right. what a success that, that was. That was a terrible experience. And that's why I'm arguing we should never do this. <laughs> okay, well, we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about why neither of us has seen this movie in a few minutes. But one of the obvious arguments for why we have to watch it is that it is pretty close to a consensus choice for the best film of the 2000s, of the aughts. The aughts. Uh, And it seems to be pretty high on the list of best film of the 21st century to date. Okay. Though, frankly, I think it's a little early to be awarding that honor. In the 2012 Sight and Sound Director's Poll, There Will Be Blood was the highest-ranked American film from the 21st century. In 2017, the New York Times named it Best Film of the 21st Century So Far. So again, I don't know why in 2017 you decide you're going to name the best film of the 21st century so far, Mm -hmm. 17 years in. I don't know what that's about. Anyway, in the inevitable slew of best of the decade lists that came out in 2009, There Will Be Blood was at or near the top of nearly every list. In fact, in December of 2009, Gawker aggregated data from nearly 30 best of the aughts lists and declared that There Will Be Blood had won the decade. 
So whether you and I will agree with that coronation <laughs> remains to be seen. But I think in order to figure out where that bar is, we should probably talk for a few minutes about our favorite films from the aughts. Mm-hmm. What movie would There Will Be Blood have to be better than oh, that's tough. in order to be declared best film of the decade? I mean, that's that's hard. Um... So let me, as, as a way to approach this, maybe I, I can refresh your memory on what some of the best picture winners were. Okay. From that decade. That's always a good measure. <laughs> <laughs> so we start the decade with Gladiator. No, I didn't even see that. <laughs> Followed by A Beautiful Mind. Did see that. Really? That won Best Picture? That did win Best Picture, yes. <laughs> that actually was. I saw that again recently. Yeah. And it's actually not It's not. Great. It's not a great movie, no. <laughs> Uh, then Chicago, which is actually a movie you like better than I do. I think it's fun. I like Catherine Zeta-Jones as a saucy little singer, dancer, slash murderer. Whereas I object to the fact that the director is terrible and nobody in the film can actually sing or dance. But that's just me. Catherine Zeta-Jones can dance. She did do the dancing in that. Okay. We can make an argument about Renee, but Catherine (laughs) Zeta-Jones, I think, worked her ass off. Okay, but still not an artistic masterpiece. Um. Okay, it's not. (laughs) Moving on. Uh, the Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, one best shit. picture. Mm-hmm. Those, I guess, I mean, that should be on our list. I just don't know how to watch those. If any, if any listeners have a suggestion short of sitting down and watching all three movies, which I will not, which be would doing. be about a twelve-hour ordeal, I just don't know how to do that. So you need to figure out which one is the best one. And that's then, well, that's the problem. I'm not watching three of those things. Okay, so running, again, the best picture went, like, you're right, this is, I mean, it's a terrible indicator. We have Million Dollar Baby, which is a movie I actively dislike. Uh, Crash, how do you feel about Crash? Oh, Jesus. Crash. That is the embarrassment of the Academy that everybody looks at, well, there are a few, but everybody looks back and just says, what the hell? The fuck were we thinking? (laughs) Crash was fucking terrible, but everyone was so proud of it and so proud of themselves for being up on this race thing. So, yeah, that mm-hmm. was just a... That's an embarrassment. Okay. The Departed, which... No. The rat stands for obviousness. <laughs> that was not good. Was that Scorsese? Yeah, that was Scorsese, yes. Uh, no Country for Old Man, which is yes. a contender. Yes. And then Slumdog Millionaire and The Hurt Locker round out the decade. I did not like Slumdog as much as everyone else did. No. I liked it, but I wasn't... It was Okay. As in love with it as everyone else. Yeah. Okay. So the point is that that list really can't. No. Other be than used no country. As any kind of guideline yeah. for this conversation. No. And it's just another reminder that the Academy Awards are pointless and don't mean anything. Or maybe it's a reminder that In we terms have of poor taste. artistic quality. Maybe it's us. Could be. And yet, as I was looking at lists from the aughts, I realized this might be the rare topic on which you and I are largely going to agree. Okay. Like, I think most of the films on my list are probably on your list. But let's let's hear, what are you nominating for Best of the Odds? <laughs> um, well, I know some of mine aren't going to be on yours. Okay. So, I mean, Eternal Sunshine would be one of that's, my favorite movies. That's one that of my top period. two contenders. I, I love that movie. I think it's so well done. I think that's a brilliant movie. Just wonderfully constructed and a really interesting way... To explore a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, probably one of the most interesting that I've seen done on film. 
it's very honest and it's very authentic yeah. about relationships, and yet it is so imaginative. It's real. It has so many ideas in it. It's funny. It's very funny. It's sad. I, I think that's an yeah. almost perfect film. I really love that movie. And that was, by the way, the runner-up in the best of the decade when Gawker put all their lists together. Mm-hmm. That was the runner-up. And okay. it was like by one vote it missed beating There Will Be Blood. Um, No Country, which actually did that's, win an that's, Oscar. That's my other top um, contender. I mean, I, you know, I have issues with the Coen brothers, but I, they, you know, they know how to make a film and No Country was, I mean, Anton Chigurh is just one of the most sort of indelible characters yeah. in film and it was just, it was great. Um, and again, that to me is just a perfect film. Mm-hmm. It's like everything works in it. It's entertaining, mm-hmm. but it's so dark. It's got a little of that Cormac McCarthy right. philosophy thing going on. It's it's just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth, which I know yep. I've said on here before. Oh shit, it. that's my other top two contender. See? I have three top yeah. three. <laughs> I love Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, Pan's. Um, uh, this would be hard to actually. It would be really hard for me one. because, and they're all really different films. So it'd be hard to say like what, what was the best one. Like Pan's Labyrinth is just sort of that perfect adult sort of bedtime story kind mm-hmm. of film. I'm a huge fan of Guillermo, and his his whole sort of gothic aesthetic is beautiful, and the sort of creatures he creates are amazing, and just really powerful visuals. But it's not just like there's still a very sort of touching story. Mm-hmm. And speaking of the Oscars being bullshit, I mean, The Shape of Water, which did win Best Picture right. this year, was fine. It was an okay movie. Right, but it wasn't Pan's Labyrinth. But, yeah. Yeah. It was not worth a tenth of what no. Pan's Labyrinth is. No. Um, and then this one, you're going to disagree with me, but The Fall. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. The Fall. Tarsum's The Fall, which I deeply love. And again, it's that sort of bedtime story feel to it like the characters are literally telling a story these sort of beautiful visuals that tarsum is known for and again a story that sort of hinges on this child actress who's just phenomenal so that would be another one of my favorites that was the same year as pan's labyrinth that was 2006 were they the same which as i look at my list was a really good year because i've got a couple of nominees from that year too uh, what else did I love in the aughts? Volver. Oh, I, I forgot Volver. about Volver. So yeah, Volver, which may be my favorite Penelope performance. I mean, Amoldovar's is wonderful with women characters, and I think Penelope shines in his films in a way that she doesn't yeah. with other directors. That's that's one of the great director muse yeah. collaborations. Um, and it's just it, it, like you know, so many of his it's just sort of lush and both very rooted in the real, but also slightly magical aspects yeah. to it. Um, I, Emotionally I'm, wrenching, yeah, and yet somehow quirky. And, and touching. And so yeah. Yeah, I really love Moldovar and Volver was, I really enjoyed Volver. When I, I didn't think of that in part because I was looking at like other best of the decade lists. See, and, this is, and they kept putting Talk to Her on there. Talk to Her is also Which brilliant. I don't, I don't, that's not one of my favorites I really like Talk to Her actually. I thought you were going to say that those movies weren't coming up at all because I found that I had to actually go look for movies created in general, by directors of color. foreign language <laughs> films. And yeah, that is And true. foreign language films, I had to actually go say, okay, what were the foreign films that came out? Mm-hmm. What were the films directed by black directors that came out during this period? Yeah. Um, so I, was gonna, I thought you were going to say that you they weren't you weren't seeing them at all. So at least they were coming up. And then Itumama Tambien came out mm-hmm. during the office That's on well. my list. That was one of my favorites. Alfonso had a fantastic decade. 
Alfonso did Itumama Tambien, uh, Children of Men, mm. which is just a fantastic film. That's on our list. Yeah. We will watch that one of these days. That was also 2006. And then this is obviously not a contender for best film of the year, okay. but Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> he gets so many bonus points for taking that franchise, rescuing it from uber hack mm-hmm. Chris Columbus and showing that you could actually make a real movie so I don't, from that franchise. I don't know those movies by name. You have to tell me like what was the big thing in it. Um, It's the one with... Uh, it's the one where they think Sirius Black is... The bad guy, and oh, then he turns out to be the good guy. Yes. It's got the time travel stuff yes. in it. Okay, yeah. yeah, I like that one. With yeah, Lucius, no, it's great. Right? Yeah. Yes, okay, I like that one. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know them by name. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, so those. that's pretty... I mean, you know, there were some other... I mean, Black Dynamite came out during that time. You know how deeply... <laughs> I do know how you love... Deeply, I love Black love Dynamite. Love some Black Dynamite. It's just in my soul. Um, Brown Sugar came out that uh, during that period... Uh, Before Sunset came out during that period. That's another one that sort of explores relationships in a way that I think is interesting um, when I don't typically like films about romance. Mm -hmm. Um, That has one of the best endings of any film. Right. Him missing his plane. Yeah. Yeah, It's great. And she's like dancing to the Nina Simone Mm -hmm. song. And then uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon also came Mm -hmm. out during that period, which was sort of this really just beautiful, innovative and surprising film. That's a movie I need to go back and rewatch. I remember being really impressed with the visuals and, you know, obviously the the fight choreography Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff, but I don't remember the actual story or anything very well. So yeah, those are some of my favorites. You, I mean, you named almost all, this is what I'm saying is we actually agree on these movies. You named almost all of mine. And I think the only ones you didn't name are because you haven't seen them. Mm-hmm. Like Children of Men, um, The Lives of Others, which is a, a German film. It's oh, actually the film that beat Pan's Labyrinth for Best Foreign Picture that year. The Lives of Others is about a, a Stasi agent who's listening in. He's, he's spying on this couple for mm-hmm. the government. And he gets emotionally involved mm-hmm. in their lives and mm-hmm. sort of starts... Yeah, it's, it's a really, really good movie. It was, you know, because I was rooting for Pan's Labyrinth, but when that won, I was like, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. I'm sort of okay with that. We didn't mention any of the Pixar movies, which that, that Gawker article I was referencing said if the Pixar movies were a series, it would have won the decade in a landslide. A series. So it treated, like, the Lord of the Rings movies as one... I see. ...category. Okay. Right. Okay. So it... And then it said if the Pixar movies... So aggregately... Right. They would have... Okay. Yeah. Because we had... They released... Finding Nemo, Cars, which I don't like. I didn't see Cars. Um, the Incredibles, Ratatouille, and Up, all in that decade. Up is like, I like the first 10 minutes Me of too. Up, and then the rest of it I can take or leave. But the first 10 minutes are But really the Incredibles powerful. and Ratatouille are... Yeah. Right up. Ratatouille is still might be my it might be my favorite. Yeah. I can sit down and watch my favorite Pixar movie. Yeah. Um just the visually I just think the it's detail beautiful. in that film. Like I could just look around that kitchen mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. Those gorgeous copper pans and yeah. stuff. And I think that stuff is underrated. I think yeah. people don't think of that as like a visually dazzling film, but it really is. It really is, yeah. Um I think there are a lot of Obvious, again, obviously not great movies in the same way, but like a lot of things that you and I will rewatch whenever they're on cable mm-hmm. came from this decade. Uh, Almost Famous, yes. 
High Fidelity, even Love Actually, which you will watch <laughs> every Christmas. Every Christmas. <laughs> okay, well, I'm not. I'm not sure we actually answered the question though. So, what is what is the best film of the aughts? Well, I haven't seen There Will Be Blood, so maybe. It is well, that's there what I'm saying. So, what's that's hard, man? Because they're all they all sort of hit a different spot for me. Um, it may be between. Eternal Sunshine. Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth. <laughs> what's, what's that? What are you Volver, saying? there, maybe, in there. Not for me. No? No Country is, would be the other one that yeah. would be up there for me. Which is actually, by the way, the film that beat There Will Be Blood for Best Picture. I guess I'm okay with that. I'm okay with those three. Okay. So which one's the best? That's... I, <laughs> those are very different films. I'll go with Eternal Sunshine. Uh, I would be, yeah. I'm not. I'm not actually gonna make a decision. Yeah, that's I can't. hard. That's that's a Sophie's Choice situation. <laughs> I feel like I heard we shouldn't use that phrase anymore. Oh my god, you're always telling me what <laughs> phrases I can't use. <laughs> I already really shouldn't be using that phrase as flippantly as we do. <laughs> well, it was obviously, a yes, obviously. <laughs> we should come up with a different one. I don't know what it would be. To replace Sophie's Choice. Yes. Who else? Had to make a terrible choice in film that isn't tied to Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> or that's a real sliding doors. <laughs> you you really you want to go to a Gwyneth Paltrow movie? Well, I, I'm trying to think of ones where there was like a choice that had to be made. <laughs> it's harder than I thought. There has to be someone. <laughs> I you know I don't know. Okay. Okay. Let's maybe go into talking about the movie. I really don't want to, but okay. Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. Now you have a great chance here. My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church. Then you will be cast up and thrust back to the partition. I'm fixed like no other company in this field. I have a string of tools ready to put to work. That's why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there. There's a whole ocean of oil under our feet. No one can get at it except for me. We'll offer 150000 for full title. When do we get our money, Daniel? I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. Don't you bully me, Daniel, please! I see the worst in people. We have a sinner with us. Get out of here, devil! I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I can't keep doing this on my own. With these, um... People... Can we talk about this movie now? I guess if you want to, sure. Okay. (laughs) 
So I guess I should start this week, since I am, for once, your fellow unenthusiast. <laughs> I mean, it's it's no particular surprise that you haven't seen There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. But for someone who purports to be a film critic, even an unaffiliated one like myself, it is an admission of shameful, even disqualifying <laughs> proportions. Written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, based on the book Oil by Upton Sinclair, There Will Be Blood was nominated for eight Oscars, including Best Picture. Uh, it won an award for Robert Elson Cinematography, and the second of a record-breaking three Best Actor Oscars for Daniel Day-Lewis. For his performance as Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood, Lewis also won Best Actor at the BAFTAs, the Broadcast Film Critics Association, the Golden Globes, the LA Film Critics Association, the National Society of Film Critics, the Screen Actors Guild, (laughs) and pretty much every other organization that was giving out awards. He won all the awards. And, though many critical and award show darlings fade quickly into obscurity, the acclaim for There Will Be Blood only grew as the years went by. As I said, by the end of the decade, There Will Be Blood was pretty much the consensus choice for best film of the 2000s. Peter Travers at Rolling Stone called it the best film of the decade. He called Daniel Day-Lewis's performance the best and ballsiest performance of the past 10 years, and said that if he had to stake the future of film in the next decade on one director, he'd go with Paul Thomas Anderson. Wow. Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune named it the best film of the decade. He said, There Will Be Blood stands alone. The more I see it, the sadder and stranger and more visually astounding it grows. And as I mentioned, the New York Times just recently called it the best film of the 21st century so far. Critic Manola Dargis called it a 21st century masterpiece. A.O. Scott said that while he was endlessly fascinated by what this movie is about, he was perpetually astonished by what it is. Stranger than any of its themes, mightier than its influence, and bigger than any of the genres it explores. So apparently, no one who hasn't seen this movie is qualified to discuss film in anyway. <laughs> and I'm basically a heathen, a Philistine, and a dilettante. Yes. But the thing is, I didn't want to. <laughs> Why didn't you want to? I mean, to be fair, it came out in 2007, which was several years before I started writing about film. Sure. So, but you'd I w- always seen films. So. I, I did. I always, yes. But I saw films I wanted to see, which, to be fair, is still how I do things as yes. a quote-unquote, film critic as well. That's the beauty of being unaffiliated, is that I can see what I feel like seeing and not see anything I don't feel like seeing. I just, I didn't want to. I wasn't a huge (laughs) Paul Thomas Anderson fan. Kind of hated Daniel Day-Lewis. I don't know how that's possible. Everyone loves Daniel Day-Lewis. Now, granted, I have, I looked, and I've apparently only seen him in one thing. What? Uh, The Crucible. (laughs) Okay. Which I don't remember being good. The one with Winona? Yes. It, um, it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't great. It wasn't great. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be the movie where you're like, "Oh, that Daniel Day Lewis." Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently, that's the only thing I've ever seen him in. But from my understanding, he is the greatest actor ever. I always found him to be the most overrated actor of his generation. Mm-hmm. And it's, I tended to overstate that because obviously he's not a terrible actor. Right. He's no Keanu Reeves. Okay. See, we didn't need to go there. We didn't need to do that. <laughs> but I, I find him very phony. I don't hmm. find him convincing. Now I will say there, there's sort of two levels of Daniel Day-Lewis to me. Okay. 
I thought he was very good in this year's Phantom Thread. Mm-hmm. Um, he was fantastic at it, but it's a very quiet, very restrained performance. You like Daniel Day-Lewis light. I like Daniel Day-Lewis not <laughs> frothing at the mouth and spitting when he talks. Diet Daniel Day-Lewis. He was good as Lincoln. His performance, that Lincoln was not a great movie, but he was very good. Mm-hmm. And again, it was a quieter, more reined-in performance. Mm-hmm. The other end of the spectrum, you have... Gangs of New York, where he is this mustachioed butcher, mob boss. It's just such a scenery-chewing performance. Mm -hmm. It's so over the top. And that, I think, when There Will Be Blood came out, that's what this looked like. The whole I drink your milkshake thing (laughs) that was in every preview and every commercial. It looked to me like it was that, Daniel Day-Lewis. And I just, I had no interest in that. Um, He's an interesting guy he's now completely retired from film he says but he is one of those obsessive method actors method actors let's let's talk about that a little bit i mean the the most famous story about him is when he was playing hamlet at the national theater in london in 1989 he left the production walking off stage mid-performance because he had been overwhelmed by the feeling that he was, in fact, talking to the ghost of his own father when he was doing the ghost scene. Okay. Well, I feel like, I think, and I may be getting this totally wrong, but I feel, I think I heard that he did an interview when he sort of announced that he was retiring, that Phantom Thread had sort of taken a lot out of him, mm-hmm. and he, he felt like he needed to step away. Right. Um, now, I am not an actor, but I imagine it is... Like no, are, and you're that's investing a lot of yourself yes. into this role. And if you are sort of the method actor type like Daniel Day Lewis And and he has and he has walked it back over the years because that story is apparently he thinks it's been blown out of proportion. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, of course when you're playing a role like Hamlet and you're putting yourself into it. At the time he said things that were more like, Yes, I saw my father and what he was saying to me I couldn't deal with, <laughs> but we'll let it go. It's fine. <laughs> Acting. Genius. Uh, That story also inspired the main character of one of my favorite TV shows, the Canadian series Slings and Arrows. So, you know, I'm grateful to it for that. You love that show more than you should. (laughs) It's a really good show. Everybody's annoying. (laughs) Okay, but but the method thing, I mean, I roll my eyes at it a little bit. Well, there are others, so, though. In pretty much in pretty much all of his movies, he insists on being addressed as the character's name mm-hmm. during performance, and you know, right on break, and, on yeah. break, and yes, twenty four hours a day, whatever accent or voice he's using, he speaks in it mm-hmm. again during the throughout the entire production. He insisted on being called Mister President when he was doing Lincoln, which I I have to think would have gotten annoying. When he did The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which takes place in Prague, he taught himself Czech, even though the film itself was in English. (laughs) He spent two days and nights in prison without food and water when he did In the Name of the Father. He was trained by butchers to cut meat when he did Gangs of New York. He actually separated from his own wife and children when he did The Ballad of Jack and Rose because the character was separated from his wife and children. He supposedly spent six months in the wild learning to track and skin animals and build canoes and fight with tomahawks when he did Last of the Mohicans. After filming was complete, he reportedly complained about suffering hallucinations of claustrophobia, saying he had no idea how not to be Hawkeye, the character in that movie, anymore. Can I, okay, so do we know other method actors? 
Yeah, there are a lot of method actors. I don't know. I think he is one of the more extreme. Okay. I don't think they all have stories like this. Okay. Uh, when he did My Left Foot, he spent eight weeks in a cerebral palsy clinic prior to shooting. And during the entire shoot, he stayed in the wheelchair, was carried around, carried out of his car when he arrived on set, and fed by the crew. That's a little... Right? That's a little much. <laughs> and if he was doing that in the clinic, I think the people with actual cerebral palsy should have... Yeah, that's, that's a little much. So, I mean, whatever works for you, I guess, but with all of this, I kind of... it. What it makes me think of is... a famous line that Laurence Olivier said to Dustin Hoffman when they were doing Marathon oh, Man. it's called acting. Yeah, Dustin Hoffman <laughs> had been up for, you know, had stayed up for three nights to achieve a suitable level of exhaustion. And Laurence Olivier was like, my dear boy, why don't you just try acting? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, I'm, I'm sure the failing is mine, but I just, <laughs> my tolerance for Daniel Day-Lewis is not always high. Okay. And then this film came out. And, I mean, sometimes reading reviews and hearing things about the film, even if they are meant to be raves, make me not want to see the movie. Okay. Okay, so let me read a couple snippets from reviews of this film when it first came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Travers again in the new, in Rolling Stone. Seeing there will be blood is like going ten rounds with a raging bull. You feel so pummeled, it's hard to get your head clear. That... <laughs> When I read a review like that, I ask myself, am I in the mood to be pummeled in the head tonight? And sometimes the answer is just no. Only sometimes? Only sometimes. Okay. Uh, Manola Dargis in the New York Times. There will be blood. Paul Thomas Anderson's epic American nightmare arrives (laughs) belching fire and brimstone and damnation to hell. Wow. And I will remind you that this movie came out at Christmas time. Doesn't that sound like a good Christmas time movie to go see? I think it depends on your family. <laughs> you know. I get enough belching of fire and brimstone for my actual family. I, if I go to the theater to escape them, I don't want that. Mm. Um, and this from Roger Ebert. Watching the movie is like viewing a natural disaster that you cannot turn away from. By that, I do not mean that the movie is bad any more than that it is good. The hell? (laughs) It is a force beyond categories. It has scenes of terror and poignancy, scenes of ruthless chicanery, scenes awesome for their scope, moments echoing with whispers, and an ending that in some peculiar way this material demands because it could not conclude on an appropriate note. Only madness can supply a termination for this story. A, the usually very clear Roger Ebert, I don't know what the hell any of that means. B, none of that makes me want to see this movie. You're not intrigued, though? No. As much as I care about cinema as an art form and want to see films that that can evoke Mm -hmm. this sort of response, you just got to be in the mood for it, man. Okay. When did this come out? December 2007. So in the intervening 11 years, <laughs> you have not been in the mood <laughs> to see There Will Be Blood. Apparently not. Okay. Or on the days that maybe I would have been in that mood, I didn't think of it. Okay. Uh, yeah. All of which, I guess, is to say we are watching it in part because it might be the only way that I would ever watch this movie. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. How are you now feeling about going I, into it? I've never wanted to see it, and I have felt no sort of internal turmoil about that. I was 
you have no guilt about been okay with yeah. my decision now granted we we occupy very different spaces i do not purport to be a film critic i do not well no you are it's it's in your title now well except that i'm not really i'm really just someone that shits on stuff that she doesn't because <laughs> it just doesn't fit into her very narrow idea of what's good and what's not good i, I am not a critic you know i i i i see film as an art form but i also like i I don't feel the need to engage with all of the sort of quote unquote genius films that come out. Mm. I don't think I've seen any Paul Thomas Anderson films. So it's not for lack of one. I just haven't gotten around to it. So he was the director of The Master, right? Yes. So I did. I remember wanting to see that because I enjoy Joaquin Phoenix and I enjoy um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm -hmm. And I just never got around to seeing it. So obviously there was just no urgency there. Um, and then again with Daniel Day Lewis, I have no reference for him as being an actor that I sort of need to keep my eye on and see everything that he's in. And then it's also part of it was the same sort of response that you had. All of the previews had that one scene with him and is it Paul Dano? Paul? Yes, Paul Dano. Uh, and he's like screaming in his face yeah. about the milkshake and shit. And I'm just like, that. I don't. What is this? I don't really need any. I, I don't need to see this. Um, so I am also not necessarily drawn to those, you know, America at the turn of the century stories that sort of white man moves west, manifest destiny uh-huh, sort of right. thing. I'm just not, it's not going to be. Yeah, those movies kind of make my ass hurt too. <laughs> those big, sprawling American right. epics. Right. Um, for one thing, they're almost always very male. Oh, yeah. Very, oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. I just, Yeah. Mm-mm. So it, there just wasn't really anything about it that I felt it was something that I needed to see. So yeah, I'm not super excited. And it's like eight hours long, right? How long? <laughs> I, I actually don't. It's like two and a half hours okay. long, I think. It's not. That's a lot still. Yeah, it's not. And yeah, and I don't. This is why I couldn't be an actor because that scene with him and Paul Dano, I'm just thinking that he's spitting in your face right now. <laughs> and I just, this, you know, aside from lack of talent, that would be the reason why I could not be an actor because someone would lose their shit on me like that. And I'd be like, okay, you're spitting in my face. At best, you just start laughing. At best, I would, well, at best, like, I'd punch you or Really? Like, are you are you going to do it that way, Danny? I'd be like slowly moving out of frame and they'd be like, Nakia, you're moving out of frame. And I was like, I, he's spitting in my face and I can't deal. <laughs> And I wear glasses, so it's an extra problem of like, okay. And you got to wipe the glasses off. You're fucking off. shit up. Yeah. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's not. No. Do you, do you think maybe we're going into this in the wrong frame of I mind? I think you should definitely be more positive about it. I mean, I'm always Well, silly. I am, I will say, and whether people believe me or not, I am open to the possibility that I am going to think it's every bit as brilliant as everyone else thinks it is. And then you're going to feel bad that you wasted these past 11 years. I'm actually not. What else? I'm actually have you not going to feel bad about that. What else have you denied yourself? Yeah, probably a lot. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's it's a still waiting for me. I haven't missed it. It's still there. Well, you missed the moment. Catch you it on Netflix. The, you know, whatever. Dialogue in the zeitgeist. You yeah, missed all that. I'm fine with that. Okay. <laughs> There's too much zeitgeist dialogue going on. It's not even like on. a meme anymore. It used to be a meme. <laughs> like I drink your milkshake, and you can't even use that anymore. <laughs> okay, so uh, what are you expecting from this? experience to be probably well i guess i can't be bored if it's like fire and brimstone and gates of hell (laughs) belching fire and damnation i don't know maybe i'll want to go to church after (laughs) okay well fuck it let's go watch it let's go get pummeled in the head not in the mood (laughs) tough shit we've reached the end of the line this is it 
Actually, I have. I really don't feel any responsibility <laughs> for it. So you can go and watch it. But yeah, this could just be an episode with you alone talking about your first time watching There Will Be Blood. Mm. I really don't need to participate. Absolutely because no. Because in this instance, Absolutely you are the unenthusiastic no critic. No one would tune in for that. What are you talking about? No one. Yes. No one wants to hear me. You no. are the star. No, it's, no. I'm the, you know. Podcast is named after you, honey. Greek chorus in the background. <laughs> you're just stalling. You're doing that thing now where you're stalling because you don't want to go watch the movie. Yes. And I'm tempted to play along with you because I don't want to watch the movie Which is why you should be doing this episode by yourself, because you (laughs) are the unenthusiastic critic, not me. I'm the critic that don't give a shit she ain't seen it. Stop crying, you sniveling ass. Stop your nonsense. You're just the afterbirth, Eli. No. Slithered out on your mother's filth. No. They should have put you in a glass jar on a mantle. Where were you when Paul was suckling at his mother's teeth? Where were you? Who was nursing you, poor Eli? One of Bandit's sows? That land has been had. Nothing you can do about it. It's gone. It's had. If you would just you lose. take this lease, Daniel. Drain it! Drain it, Eli, you boy. Drain dry. I'm so sorry. If, if you have a milkshake... And I have a milkshake. And I have a straw. There it is. That's a straw, you see. Watch it. My straw reaches across the room and starts to drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. Okay, we're back. During the break, Nikki and I watched There Will Be Blood. And actually, we both watched it yesterday as we record this. And this morning, I watched it again. Alone. Well, I didn't figure I could talk you into watching it again. (laughs) I can't talk you into watching anything again. Uh, Because I wanted to be, you know, take another look at it and make sure I wasn't missing something. (laughs) Nikia, what did you think of the movie? I thought it was good. I do not think it is the greatest film of the 20th century. 21st Sorry, century. Of the 21st century. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, neither did I. <laughs> I'm not sure it was the greatest film I watched this month of the 21st century. <laughs> I was really unimpressed. And I obviously that has to do with the height. Right. And all of those reviews I read and all of those lists I referenced. That called it the best film of the decade, the best film of the 21st century so far. I mean, if I had seen it in a theater the week it opened before I read a lot of reviews and things, I probably would have said it was a good movie. Mm -hmm. I would have said it was an interesting movie. Mm -hmm. I would have said it was a beautifully made movie. I don't know that it would have made my best of the year list. Interesting. Had I done one in 2007. And I... And I honestly can't figure out what movie everyone else watched <laughs> that I did not see. Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea? Um, I don't. I, uh, yeah. I think we were probably primed 
to go into it looking for it to be disappointing. We were skeptical. For all the reasons that And that's that's actually why I watched it again. Talked about. Because I didn't want to just... Because I I knew I went into it with a bad attitude. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't want to just have a one viewing reaction right, right. and then have people say, well, if you watch it seven more times, you'll start to understand this, right. this, and this. And maybe that's still true. I mean, certainly that's possible. I mean, I'm willing to buy that it would reward multiple viewings. There are certainly films that I think reward multiple viewings. Mm-hmm. You get more out of them the third, fourth, fifth time you watch them. But... Generally, those movies, the first viewing, I may not get everything, but on the first viewing, it makes me want to watch it again. Right, right. I didn't want to watch this again. (laughs) Yeah, I have no desire to see There Will Be Blood ever again. I think, and I think it's hard for any film to sort of stand up to that sort of critical bar of everyone says it's the best movie of the 21st century, everyone says, or at least it was right. the best movie of that year, and that it was this sort of genius artistic product. So that's a really high bar. And so when you're coming into that a little bit later, and you're already sort of eh, on Paul Thomas Anderson and sort of <laughs> eh, on Daniel Day-Lewis, it's it's probably not going to be the same experience for us as it was for other people who didn't have those sort of right. prejudices going in. I also think... Probably seeing it in a theater was a different experience than watching it. I mean, we have a big-ass television, but it's still not being in a theater. Right. Because I know that was true of last year's Phantom Thread, Mm -hmm. which was a movie I really liked. And watching it in a theater, I think, was a completely different experience than watching it at home Mm -hmm. would be. Mm -hmm. Just the sound design and the cinematography, the, the depth of focus... Like, everything, it's, it was just made to watch on a big screen. Right. And I'm sure that was true of this, and I'm sure that's part of it, too. For me, the the piece that did the most work and provided the sort of most emotional resonance for me yep. was the score. Yep. Um, and that was Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, which make, I love Radiohead, so I'm not surprised by that at all. It's genius, and I feel like it, it does a lot of the work... A lot of the sort of mood creating, the sort of almost biblical feel of the film. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that comes from the score because it, it almost it, there's, it's just this sort of sets of discordant tones and string sounds that almost sounds like locusts, sort of like this impending mm-hmm. biblical doom. Um, and it's very it's relentless, but it's not assaultive. And I don't think it's overpowering the story or the film. But I do think, for me at least, it was probably the strongest asset i i thought it was by far the best part of the film it's a brilliant score because there are moments when it's sort of like a classical movie score Mm -hmm. it's like a traditional movie score Mm -hmm. and then the music almost without you noticing it kind of degenerates into this more discordant tone there are moments when it sounds like a horror movie soundtrack which i guess is appropriate no it's really good and it mixes a lot of different stuff together in fact it was ruled ineligible for original score at the oscars because it uses brahms Mm. snippets of brahms and Mm. other composers in it so it's not a completely original original score Mm -hmm. but but yeah you take that out and i my opinion of this movie is less yes absolutely well, and I think, so here's, and it's funny because I, I think I mentioned um, earlier in the show 
that the first 10 minutes of Up is the best part of that movie. And I could just stop the DVD at that point and be completely satisfied with what I just watched. I sort of feel the same way about There Will Be Blood. I think that first silent, like 10 to 15 minutes. It may be even be 20 minutes. It may be 20 minutes. I mean, it's a a decent amount of time where there's really little to no dialogue. And it's all Johnny Greenwood's score. And, you know, initially it's Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, in the mine alone, hacking away at the rocks, trying to find silver. And then he has this terrible accident where he breaks his knee, you know, claws himself up out of the mine and then realizes that there's oil to be found. And you see this sort of business slowly sort of grow around him. Like there are more men involved in there's sort of um, rudimentary oil rigs being put into place and things like that. And then there's a baby. And so they find oil and there's this really sort of beautiful scene where they lift, I don't know what the terminology is, but they lift the thing out of the well that has all the oil on it, the the drill or whatever. And Daniel Day-Lewis takes his hand and wipes it and then lifts his hand to the heavens and it's covered in oil and it's almost this like baptism sort of moment and then someone on his crew is holding their child this little infant and he sort of anoints the baby's forehead in oil and it's this this sort of really sort of powerful moment of baptism in capitalism yeah um and i mean we have we have the themes of the movie right right. there we have the religion and the capitalism and and it reminded me, and again, a lot of this is also Greenwood score of that first section, I think it's the first section, of Space Odyssey yeah. with the monkeys yeah. and the uh, the obelisk. Absolutely. And, and it's like that. this sort of birth of man as like, you know, birth of capitalist man as birth yeah. of man. It's like this or- is when, right, this is when America starts. 20th this century is when America. American man becomes someone. And right? Anderson is a huge Kubrick fan. He admits mm-hmm. that. He says, you know, basically there's nothing any of us can do right. that Kubrick didn't do first. Right. And but this is very yeah. deliberate. Right from that opening tone, mm-hmm. that sustained tone that is the first thing we it's hear. It's very Space Odyssey. It's very much like the beginning of 2001. And I think we're, I think let's come back to that at the end of the movie, because I think that calls back to that. The very last scene of the movie calls mm-hmm. back to that, too. And there's a scene in this that same sort of beginning section where there's another accident in the well with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis where some piece falls from the, the drill right. down into the well and he comes up and then there's just this close-up shot of his face and his face is covered in oil and blood. Mm-hmm. And so, and then that, and, and I think if you ended the movie, it would be like a p- perfect little short film. Yeah. And it would say everything that you were trying to say yeah. with it. And I think it would be a really strong and powerful film that like if you just did that 20 minutes. But then after that prologue, Daniel Day-Lewis starts talking. The very (laughs) next thing we hear is his speech to this gathered group of townsfolk where he's basically selling himself and trying to talk them out of their land. I'm an oil man. I'm an oil man, he says, and he's a family man. Mm -hmm. Again, we have these two themes together. He says, you know, we offer you the bond of family. I'm not going to try to do his voice the voice he uses in this movie. Mm-hmm. It is uh, John Huston's voice, basically, is what he's doing. I don't Who's John Huston? He, the director, John Huston. Paul Thomas Anderson is also a big fan of the Humphrey Bogart movie, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which was directed by John Huston and which is about greed. And there mm-hmm. are, so there are themes that resonate there. I think the other callback is to Chinatown, in which John Huston acts, um, and he's this totally evil businessman who's basically trying to control all of California's water supply. Mm-hmm. And so whether that was Anderson's choice or whether that was Daniel, the voice Daniel Day-Lewis settled on, 
it's a very good impersonation. If you close your eyes, you would think that was John Huston's mm. voice. But it's also right from the moment he starts talking that way, that thing I was saying earlier, it starts to feel phony to me. Mm. It feels like he's putting on a part. Mm. It doesn't feel internal to me. It feels fake. Um, and this is something we, we talked earlier about that when he was doing Hamlet and he walked off the stage right. mid-production. And by the way, I, I don't think I mentioned that was the last time he ever set foot on stage. He has never gone back oh, to okay. the theater. Um, but his director in that play, Richard Ayer, said, in retrospect, Hamlet was the last part I should have asked him to play um, and talked about how obsessional Daniel Day-Lewis is. He said, in many ways, he's better suited to film acting than stage work. He's more comfortable in deep disguise. Tell him to bodybuild or tell him he's a paraplegic and he's in paradise. But if you ask him to look inside himself and self-analyze, he's much less comfortable. Hmm. And that's, I mean, we're going to have to talk about that performance and whether we think it was the greatest performance of the 21st century, I clearly don't. <laughs> because it's that's what I see in that, is that it's like, I put on a mustache and I put on an accent yeah. and I'm doing this thing. It, it doesn't convince me at all. Do you buy it? Um, I mean, there are parts of it where you see the work and you see the acting. I think there are moments when it feels like an authentic, individualized, sort of original character. Mm -hmm. And then there are other moments where it looks sort of like a series of ticks and and choices. Mm -hmm. So one scene that, and I'm skipping way ahead, but that last scene in the bowling alley was ludicrous in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, but even before it gets, you know, way crazy... When Paul Dano's Eli comes into the bowling alley and they first start talking and so Eli sort of goes to the back to fix drinks uh -huh. and then the, the camera's just on Daniel Day-Lewis's uh, plain view because he's been asleep drunk on the floor and so he's right. trying to sort of get himself up and, and pull himself together. He's like doing this weird thing where he's like sort of shaking his leg and just, there's this very weird physicality mm -hmm. that's happening with him and it looks studied yeah and it looked like this is what it it is when i'm sort of coming out of my stupor and i'm just gonna be like it's so there are moments like that where i'm just like okay daniel like really like we didn't need to go there but then there are other moments that are sort of just as you know s scene chewing but work a little bit better like i think he's good when he's um when he was like w the conversation he was having with the union railroad guys when they were trying to offer him mm -hmm. i think was it, whoever they were trying to offer him a million dollars right for the land that he purchased and he's he had this very steady tone but he was basically telling them like i will fucking kill you in your sleep if, <laughs> if you think i'm gonna do and and i thought so i think he's he was like really good there in those sort of quieter moments which is what you said earlier yeah. and then but there are moments where he's got a great this. face yes. he's got a great expressive face i mean some of my favorite moments in this movie are when the camera was just in on him mm -hmm. in close up mm -hmm. and he wasn't saying anything yeah. And he wasn't acting except behind his eyes. Yeah. And again, we can talk about how much the direction and the cinematography and the music... Helped with that. Helped with that. Right. But it, that worked for me. Yeah. Then I saw a character there. Mm -hmm. When he was drooling all over Paul Dano at the end of the movie, <laughs> not so much. But let's let's get to that later. Okay, so, I mean, I think... I think this movie sort of breaks down into kind of three acts, with the first act being up until about the point where the accident happens, mm. the fire, mm -hmm. and his adopted son, which mm -hmm. is that baby we saw in the first scene, H.W., mm -hmm. is rendered deaf. And then the second act is about his long-lost brother, and then the third act is 
the bowling alley scene, right. all of that. So let's let's kind of go through this a little bit. So let's talk about that first section of the film, okay? Which is the rise, I guess, of Daniel Plainview. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he's he's trying. He's buying up land. He's we we don't know if he's bilking these families we sort of assume he Mm -hmm. is his son hw seems to be sort of a prop yes in this enterprise where he sells this image of the family man he talks very big about what he's going to do for the community Mm -hmm. um if they let him drill on their land and he gets he gets this visit from paul paul dano right Paul Sunday, played by Paul Dano. Right. Yes. Who is offering him information about land in California that he can have cheap that's rich in oil, supposedly. Right, right. Um, And so they sort of go back and forth, and Paul is quite savvy, actually, for, you know, what they assume to be, you know, a sort of dumb farm boy who they would be able to sort of just... Take. Yeah, he says, I'd like it better if you didn't right. think I was stupid. And so he, you know, gets the money that he came for, and he tells him this is where the, the land is, and that's where you will find the oil. He's actually a really interesting character. Yes. I sort of wish we saw him again yeah. at some point in the rest of the movie. Very savvy. Because just the situation where he's basically telling this guy to go rip off his family. Right. There's a lot of story there, and I think that, I think that part, with the two brothers comes from Upton Sinclair's novel, which I have not read. A lot of this movie does not okay. come at all from Upton Sinclair's okay. novel. But I think that the brothers' story is is a remnant of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, then we're you know, he's then he's up on the Sunday ranch. Yes. He takes HW and they go to the Sunday ranch and they tell the father, you know, we're here to hunt pheasants. Can we quail. just sorry, quail. Can we <laughs> just um go camp out on the land and yeah, just so they can poke around right, and, and look see for, what's going on. Yeah. They realize that yes, there is oil there to be had. Mm-hmm. And so they make an offer, and they offer quail prices. <laughs> yes, not oil prices. H.W. asks him, <laughs> you know, what are we going to give him? And he says, Well, we're not going to give him oil prices. We're going to give him quail prices. And the father, you know, basically takes Plainview's presence as a sign from God uh-huh. and sells his land for pretty cheap. And that is the start of the Sunday Ranch. And this is where oil we. Mecca. This is where we meet Eli. This is where we meet Eli. The other brother, also played by Paul Dano. Yes. Now, you and I, when we watched this, wondered, was there some significance to them being twins? Right. At first, I wasn't even sure there actually were two brothers. I was, because they never seemed to mention Paul. So it no. was like, okay, did, did Eli make Paul up for some reason mm-hmm. and pretend to be Paul? No, okay, so there actually were two brothers, we find out later, even though we never see Paul again. Uh, Apparently what happened was Paul Dano was hired to play Paul, and another actor named Kel O'Neill was supposed to play Eli. Okay. And he was fired. Oh. Um, I mean, I don't think it was, it just, it wasn't working, and Mm -hmm. I think they all agreed it wasn't working. Mm Mm-hmm. I read an interview with him where he said, you know, I wasn't really even that interested in acting. I auditioned for this and, you know, he he does other things. The the implication to me was being on that set with obsessive Paul Thomas Anderson and obsessive Daniel Day-Lewis. And being the guy who's not that serious. I just wanted some craft services. Right. So Paul Dano ended up playing both parts, which I think creates an interesting dynamic. It does because you're waiting for that to be a thing. Right. You're waiting for either it to be revealed that there was no Paul, that Eli was 
both brothers or you're waiting for Paul to come back into the picture and there's to somehow be some sort of meaning behind their being yeah. twins. And they're what that they're just they just or even be, just a symbolic right. meaning to it, which I guess sort of comes at the end, maybe. Yeah, but let's talk about that okay. later. <laughs> I, don't, I don't feel like it earns that at all. That's one of my complaints about this movie. Oh gosh, but yes. So Eli comes into the picture and is sort of immediately suspicious of Plainview and looking to figure out how he can sort of best capitalize on you know for his church, for, right? For his church. Eli um, is a preacher man. Yeah. Uh, so what does it mean <laughs> that this oil money is coming to town? You know, Daniel Day-Lewis gives this speech to the community of the Sunday Ranch, you know, saying basically, I'm an oil man, yes, but what that means is I'm going to build you a great school and I'm going to make it, we're going to deal dig water wells so that you can actually have, you know, irrigated land and you can raise crops and grain, which mean that you could have bread and bread shouldn't be a luxury mm-hmm. and you'll have new roads and you'll have agriculture and you'll have employment and you'll have education. And it's like, yeah. I'm promising you the world if I can strip your land of everything that yeah. it's worth. None um, of which we actually see no, at any point in the movie. We, we don't do see any. There may Maybe he built a school. We don't see that. Right. It doesn't look to me like the town prospers. No. Particularly. Um, and Eli's concern is, will the new road lead to the church? Yes. And uh, Plainview says, yes, of course. Yes. That will be the first place the new road leads. <laughs> So the first sort of moment of where we see that these two individuals are sort of going to be... Adversaries. Adversaries. <laughs> I do like this scene a lot. When um, Eli comes to Daniel Day-Lewis and say, asks, you know, since I'm the preacher of the yeah. community, I think it's really important that I bless the well, the right. oil well. And this is how you will introduce me. <laughs> and it goes into very detailed of like, you will say, the proud son of these hills who tended his father's flock yeah. will, you know, come up and bless the well. And then you will say my name. Right. Which tells us a lot about Eli yes. right there. Like, if he had just wanted to bless the well, maybe right. he's a legitimate spiritual leader. Right. No, but no, he has a script yes. for this. He's creating a moment of basically advertisement and yeah. aggrandizement yeah. And, and legitimization. Position me as a leader yes. of this community. Yes. And Plainview sees right through this and is just like, <laughs> sure, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then... And the day comes when we're, you know, going to turn the well on. And Eli is standing there front and center waiting for his moment. Plainview comes down, grabs Mary, the Eli's little sister. Yeah. Takes her to the front and says, we've named this well the Mary Sunday mm-hmm. Well in honor of this beautiful little Mary. Uh, the proud daughter of these hills. <laughs> yeah. And he goes on to bless the well himself. Yeah. And does not acknowledge Eli at all. And you just sort of see Eli's face crack while he's standing yeah. there. And that's sort and of he's very good. Paul Dano is he's very, very good. Because he, he has to do a lot with his face. Yeah. Sort of registering that moment of disappointment and anger. And unlike other people in the movie, he doesn't overplay it. No. Like, we don't see him crumble. No. We don't see him look angry. No. He sits there with this, like, weird smile on his face throughout the entire right. ceremony. But we know exactly what's going on right. in his head. And so that's the sort of moment when they become enemies and sort of forces yeah. in opposition to each other. Which is... Plainview goes out of his way to make an enemy of Eli. Yes. Which is one of the interesting things about this movie. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to do that. He could no. have just let him. So I, maybe we can talk about why that is. Mm-hmm. But it's like Daniel picks a fight yes. with this guy. Yeah. Starting with the fact that when they made the deal for the land, he promised five thousand dollars to the church. To the church. That thirty years later, they have at never the end received. Of the movie, <laughs> Eli still has not gotten. Mm-hmm. 
Um, okay, but yes, now the the well is going. The right. well is running. There are several accidents that happen. Yes. First, somebody down in the well gets a drill bit to the face or something mm-hmm. and gets killed. And this is when Daniel goes to Eli's church for the first time and witnesses Eli's sermon, <laughs> if we can call it that. Sure. Which is as bizarre as anything mm-hmm. in this film. Mm-hmm. He is doing this, like, laying on of hands to cure this old woman of arthritis. Yeah. It's very much in that sort of tent revival sort of vibe. Yes. And he's shouting about fighting with the ghosts. Out, ghosts. Mm -hmm. Get out of here, ghosts. She has arthritis, so he's going to banish the arthritis. Right. These are the arthritis ghosts that that have been plaguing this old woman. They are devils. And he, I just, some of these lines, he's like, as long as I have teeth, I will bite you. Mm -hmm. And if I have no teeth, I will gum you. Yeah. (laughs) So he's a flim flam man. He is. He is a false prophet. He is a false prophet, as, (laughs) yes, he will be forced to admit later in the film. But yes, Eli Eli says that the accident of the well happened because Daniel didn't let him bless the well. Right. So the well is cursed, which maybe is true, because I think the next thing that happens is the big accident at yeah. the well, where there's a gas explosion that H.W. is standing a little too close to, and he is blown back, and as we will discover, rendered deaf. Mm-hmm. And this is... I mean, these, so these are the relationships that need to work for this movie to work. You know, H.W. and Daniel, Eli and Daniel. I think there are only a handful of scenes with all of them to make it work. And this is, I think, one of the key scenes for Daniel and Mm H.W. Because Daniel appears to be genuinely concerned. Yes. He runs up, he grabs H.W., he cradles him, he carries him back to the house. You know, H.W. can't hear. He's... Very upset about that. And then the fire starts at the well. And Daniel says, you know what, son? I got to go deal with this. You stay here. Yeah. And leaves him. Yeah. And runs up to the well. And he deals with the fire at the well. And by the end of that scene, it's like he's forgotten about HW. Mm -hmm. He's not even upset that the well is burning. He's happy. He's like doing a little dance of joy because there's oil. Right. There's like an ocean of oil, he says, underneath this land. So, I, I mean, I... I think there's a question, does he actually care about H.W. at all? I mean, I think he does insofar as H.W. is useful as a, a prop in his story, right? Like, if he is going to be, if he is selling the image of the family oil man, then he needs H.W. by his side. And an H.W. that's deaf or an H.W. that is, you know, acting out is no longer useful and doesn't sort of fit that that story. But after the accident, there's the scene where Daniel Day-Lewis and his team of men are sort of out on the, surveying the land or something. And Eli walks up and asks, you know, when is the church going to get its money? And Daniel Day-Lewis turns on him very angry and starts smacking him around. Yeah, out of and, nowhere. Right, just, just slaps Furious him. and just uh, so much aggression and anger. And he's screaming, you know, aren't you a healer? Why can't you heal my son? Right. You haven't come to see my son. Why haven't you, why can't you heal my son? So there is this, you know, whether it's coming from a pure place of fatherly love or not i do think that there is concern for hw um is it real though like i couldn't tell in that scene if he was performing for other people if he was performing or if it's just an excuse to beat eli that's possible because we don't daniel has no faith of any kind as far as we can tell we have no reason to think he ever asked eli to heal his son No, no no we have no reason to think he would 
that he would expect that. It it really just seems to me more like an excuse mm-hmm. to beat the shit out of Eli. Because <laughs> possible. Because he wants to. Yeah. And then that leads to the very next scene we see Eli, mm-hmm. having not even washed off the mud <laughs> that Daniel has pushed him in, beat his father up. Right. They're at the dinner table and mm-hmm. he starts yelling at his father and slapping his father. And... He's calling his father a stupid man. Yeah. You know, because of all that he gave away to Plainview by selling their land so cheaply. And then that's when we hear the mention of Paul, which is, you know, you know that Paul sent him here. I know that it was Paul that told Mm -hmm. him that the oil was here and that is why he came. And you are a stupid, lazy man for letting him come and take everything from you for nothing. So that, I mean, there's actually, that family has some shit going on. (laughs) that, that's not the first time the dad has sort of been... Um, His name is Abel. Abel. Should, okay, yeah, yes. That's... Sorry, I didn't even catch that. Okay. <laughs> the Cain and Abel stuff is going to come up a lot, right. too. So it's not the first time that we see Abel sort of uh, emasculated in a way. Um, this time it was at the hands of his son. But earlier in the movie, it's at the hands of um, Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, the first thing is, one, he just he ripped him off like he took his land for nothing. Right. Um, but then as a sort of aside, we find out that Abel has been hitting Mary, the little girl, his right. daughter. Um, and so... When she wouldn't pray. When she wouldn't pray. Yes. Right. Which could mean some other stuff. Um, and <laughs> so there's this moment you where... You got a dark mind. Well, that... Hey. So... The kids are sort of out running and playing, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and Abel are sitting at this like picnic table and Mary comes by and Daniel Day-Lewis grabs Mary and he's like, do you like this new dress that I bought you? And she's like, yes. And, um, are you happy that I came here? Right, are you happy that I came here? And she's then, very uncomfortable. She's very uncomfortable. And then he goes, and your dad's not hitting you anymore, right? And she's like, no. And then the camera turns and we see that Abel is sitting, <laughs> sitting right, right the fuck there saying nothing. And so it's just like, oh, so there's some weird shit going on with that family. Yeah. And like... It, that was a very weird exchange between Daniel Day-Lewis and this little girl that yeah. was oddly, like, sexualized in a way that I was like, well, what? Like, there were lots of things like that where I'm just like, is this something? Or But then we never come back to it. And so well, like... that's... And <laughs> there is a lot of stuff like that, and that's part of my issue with this film. And maybe we're all just supposed to fill in the pieces, but right. I don't... I don't know. Some of it just seems um, sloppy to me. Yeah. But with H.W. out of commission, because he had the nerve to go deaf, Yeah, um, we... Uh, are introduced to Henry Plainview, who says that he is Daniel's half-brother. Half-brother, yes. His brother from another mother. His brother from another mother. Um, And they get to be pretty close chums fairly quickly. And Daniel opens up to him in a way that we haven't seen him open up to anyone, really, throughout the film. And they have this sort of, I guess I would like, character moment around the fireside. And so that's when we sort of get a very explicit statement on who Daniel is and like what his motivation is. Daniel says, you know, I have competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. Mm-hmm. I hate people. <laughs> I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. Mm-hmm. Um, and his whole point of sort of earning all this money through oil is to be able to get away from everyone because right. he sees the worst in everyone. And, he, you know, I've built up all these hatreds over the years. I want to get money so that I can get away from everyone because I think everyone is terrible and full of shit. And so that also sheds light on his feelings towards Eli, because I think he probably pegged Eli very early as a fraud Mm -hmm. um, and a hypocrite. And so he already hates people. And now you're someone who's, you know, using religion to dupe people. And so it's like you're doubly terrible in his eyes. But Um, is he is he terrible in exactly the same way that Daniel is terrible? I mean, is that is it a recognition of a competitor? mm -hmm. I mean, it's probably I mean. 
I Daniel probably thinks he's slightly better. I think Daniel thinks he's stronger, mm-hmm. and he is, but better? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure morality enters anywhere into this movie. Right. I mean, so, so I think that's, you know, the question of, like, I mentioned earlier, like, why does he pick a fight with this guy? Mm-hmm. Maybe it is just competition. Maybe it's like, sure. this town's only God got and capitalism can't rule at the same controlling time. controlling fraud, right. and I'm going to be it. Yeah. That's true. Um, okay, so yes, Henry has showed up. H.W. doesn't seem to take a liking to Henry. No, H.W. tries to burn his ass alive. <laughs> um, <laughs> while Henry and Daniel are sleeping in the cabin, H.W. lights a fire and sets the cabin on fire. Now, it looks like he's trying. The fire looks at least aimed at Henry. There's like a trail of fire across so the floor. So we can, you know, infer right, that he was trying to burn Henry for some reason. But There's poor planning because that's, you know. Yeah, I mean, fire, you just, you're not going to control it. Um, <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so, but, you know, they both, both Henry and Daniel make it out alive, and that's sort of when Daniel decides, okay, H.W., it's time for you to go. Yeah. So he puts him on a train and does the whole, like, I'm going out for a pack of cigarettes thing, and leaves him on a train. Yeah. And sends him away without even saying goodbye. Which I guess, to the extent that this guy has any kind of arc, which is something we can talk about, mm-hmm. is that the most important scene in the movie, do you think? When is he that loses all his... connection with humanity? Yeah. I mean, insofar as we argue that he and HW had an actual genuine relationship, then yes. That, which is the part I'm uncertain right. on. And I guess the same thing with Henry. I guess we have the two. Yes. These are his two family members. The blood. Neither of whom, in reality, are actual family. Are actual family. Right. But yes, he abandons the HW. The blood isn't real, but the oil away. is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's so profound. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> And then, yeah, at some point he figures out that Henry is not right. actually his brother. So Henry knew his half-brother in, where did he come, New Mexico or something. Yeah. And it turns out his half-brother had actually passed away from tuberculosis yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But what he did have was his half-brother's diary. And so he basically just studied it and then was able to pass himself off um, as his half-brother. But it, yeah. So Daniel is basically has confronted him by pointing a gun at his face, and They're, he says, "Daniel, I'm your friend. Right, I'm, I'm your friend. He's like, I'm I don't not your brother. Harm. I am your friend, which is probably true. Probably. It's certainly the closest thing we've seen Daniel have mm-hmm. to a friendship. Uh, doesn't go over. No, he shoots well. him in the head. He shoots him cold blood, <laughs> close point. Um, and that's the end. And then buries his body. Yeah, in a pit that's filling up with oil. Yeah. So. Any sort of connection to, like I said, human humanity or family is pretty much gone at this point. And it's just sort of descent into madness for Daniel. And that sort of, that big meeting that he has with the, the other sort of oil tycoons who are trying to buy the land from him. One of the gentlemen keeps, you know, sort of saying, you could take this money and you can spend time with your son. Right. And it's increasingly agitating yeah. Daniel to the point where he's, you know, getting irate about it. And But then, like, the sort of pivotal question he asks, he's like, what else would I do with myself? Right. Like, if I wasn't out there speculating for oil, if I wasn't, you know, doing what else would I do with myself? Right. And so that's just, it was like, Daniel's purpose is not about building family and building connection. His purpose is, like, the constant drive for more success and more sort of acquisition. Yeah. Which um, is, is which is a very American thing. Yes. It's a very classic trait American male thing, people. yes. Yes, mm-hmm. that, you know, because the question always comes up, like, how much money do you need? Right. Do you really need to earn more money? But it's not about that. Right. It's about power and it's mm-hmm. about the quest, mm-hmm. the thirst to just always acquire, no matter how much you have, right. always acquire more and more and more. Right. And if you give that up, who are you? And this is sort of where you get shadows of, like, Citizen Kane in there. Yeah, um, I want to talk about that, too. Which you, which more so at the end, um, when he's in his mansion. Yeah. But this idea of, like, 
obsessive acquisition. But with Citizen Kane, which I love, that did a better job of sort of grounding that in a loss and in like this need to fill a hole yep. that had been there since child, like the whole Rosebud thing, right? Right, that's the so, whole point like, of it. He acquired people because he wanted to be loved, but he didn't know how to actually give love. Right. And he acquired things because he just needed to sort of fill this space and create this world for himself. So there's that, you know, that sort of superficial similarity with, with Daniel's character, but with, with Daniel and with There Will Be Blood, that sort of grounding just isn't there. Like Other than he's just an obsessive capitalist, which that could be what it is He's, and and that's his only driving force there's no really emotionality there's no interiority to sort of ground everything that's happening and that may be why it's so hard to sort of care or connect with him in the way that we could with right. Charles Foster Kane. That's that's why it doesn't work, ultimately mm-hmm. work for me. I mean, Charles Foster Kane had a heart. That yeah. was the whole fucking point of it, mm-hmm. was that he had had a heart and he'd lost it. And he had had principles, you know, there's the whole statement right. of principles right. thing throughout Citizen Kane. And he, you know, betrayed them. And it's, we see this arc mm-hmm. for how he became this person. We don't see that right. with Daniel. We don't, I'm not convinced he has ever had a heart mm-hmm. i'm not convinced he ever cared about anyone or anything and then even just from a from a story structure viewpoint we don't see we don't see him being rich no other than the mansion at the end that sad ass <laughs> mansion that <laughs> yeah. he's just sitting in yeah like he's like he's squatting yeah. in it there's no pleasure shooting his to possessions it. yeah he doesn't really have a lot of possessions right. it seems to be mostly empty he built the mm-hmm. house and he had no idea what to do with it after that we don't see him interact with anyone else except no. Except these three people we've mentioned. He doesn't have any other friends. There are no women in his life, as far as we can tell. Mm -hmm. It's just, I'm not not sure it's a fully realized character. But I mean, and well, but that's right when we go back to the whole, like, fireside chat where he is like, I hate everyone. And maybe he is just a true misanthrope. He hates everyone. He has no desire to have any relationships or any connections to anyone. Now, the question could be, why? Like, are sort of natural inclination is like, well, what happened to you as a child? Obviously something had to have happened for you to be, and, and maybe something did and it just isn't, there wasn't a need or a desire to sort of explore that as a way to explain the character. But he says, I hate everyone. I see the worst in everyone. So why would we see him have any sort of relationships that weren't transactional in this film? Okay, are we are we at the the final act here? Oh, we skipped over the, uh, right. so, the church scene. Well, okay, so there was a plot of land when when Daniel first came to the Sunday Ranch. There was a plot of land. There was a holdout who didn't want to sell, and he right. wanted to talk to Daniel. Daniel never went to talk to him. The bandy, bandy yeah, the bandy farm. So there comes a point where he needs to reengage the bandy farm so that he can build a pipeline to Pacific Ocean. Yeah, um, yeah. so that he can transport the oil that way so he goes to try to connect with bandy and bandy says you know god has told me what you must do you must be washed in the blood of jesus christ it's the only way to your salvation it's the only way to get what you want Mm -hmm. which i think is an interesting sort of way to frame that of like salvation and what you want so that's how the church that's how churches have worked for thousands of years you will never be saved if you reject the blood (laughs) um so yes so to get the bandy land daniel realizes he has to go to church and he has to be baptized so they go to church Eli is giving this sermon about how not everyone is saved. Right. The whole universal salvation thing is a lie. Mm -hmm. You have to 
you know, jump through the hoops if right. you want to be saved. And so Daniel sort of offers his, himself up for salvation, and Eli basically humiliates him in front of the entire congregation, makes him admit that he's a sinner, makes him admit that he's abandoned his child, mm-hmm. and then smacks him around a little bit as payback for uh, for yeah. Daniel smacking him around. And it's a very, I mean, if anybody thought, there was anything about God or Jesus involved in that moment, they were high because it was obviously a performance yeah. on Daniel's part. He's like, okay, I'm going to say whatever you need me to say just so that I can get the land that I need. Um, and even while Eli is, you know, baptizing him, he's still mocking him and saying, you know, where's God, Eli? I don't see God, you know, sort yeah. of thing. And it's an interesting moment because what he's saying is true. Mm-hmm. And we assume it bothers him mm-hmm. that he abandoned his child. Mm-hmm. We've seen some signs of that but it is performative right it's not a big emotional confession no. for him no. in that moment no he's just mouthing the words right. even though they're true right um, which I think is then what Eli does when we get to the end of the movie mm-hmm. too mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems to have worked God's favor shines upon Daniel HW comes back from wherever they exiled him to mm-hmm. and he gets the pipeline that he wanted uh, and then we fast forward to about 1927 mm-hmm. and HW and Mary are now married. Yes. And that, there's a lovely scene I really like in there of H.W. learning sign language Mm -hmm. and Mary kind of just following Mm -hmm. H.W. around and like... Learning it as well. Learning it as well and just sort of imitating it Mm -hmm. and going through that with him. That's a really nice scene. Yeah, yeah. There's just a moment where they like, H.W. just jumps off this little ledge Mm -hmm. into the street and then she jumps jumps after him. Yeah. It's a really sweet scene. Yeah. Uh, yes, then we flash forward to their wedding. Right. And that's when we see that Plainview is living in the mansion that he'd always wanted. Uh-huh. Pretty much alone, other than, <laughs> I guess, a butler of some sort. Yeah. Um, and he is playing target practice with the little things that he does have in the mansion. Uh-huh. And drinking heavily, as he's been steadily drinking heavily right. throughout the film. Um, One wonders what he's done with his money, because he didn't... This is not Charles Foster Kane buying right. art and no. things, even. Like, that house is empty. Yeah. I'm assuming it's sitting in a bank somewhere to be passed down uh, to someone. Buried in the backyard Generational wealth is built. And then, so he gets a visit from adult H.W., who says that he is going to move to Mexico with Mary and start his own drilling company. Yeah. And he's saying this through his interpreter, uh, mm-hmm. H.W. signing, and then his interpreter's interpreting it for Daniel. And Daniel basically says, that makes you my competitor. Yeah. You are not my son. You're an orphan. You're worse than a bastard. Right. Um, Tell, tells him in this moment for apparently yeah. the first time that he's not really his right. blood. Um, and, and also Just, admits that I needed a sweet face to buy land, and that's why... I kept you around. Just unbelievably cruel. Very cruel. And then we get to that infamous final scene. Yes. You have any thoughts about this final scene? (laughs) This is the scene that when I mentioned Ebert earlier was saying that, you know, the final scene is insane, but it's insanity is the only way this movie could end. I think he could have just died, like in a drunken stupor. But yeah, so Eli had been gone for, I don't know, 10 years or so, some number of years on a uh, spiritual mission, supposedly, which probably means he was in some sort of black and or brown neighborhood or uh, community teaching them the sort of the right way of Jesus. <laughs> Cynic. Colonialism. And so he comes back to see his dear friend, <laughs> Daniel, 
Yes, he acts like they're old Just friends. chummy buddies. Yeah. And he says, you know, Bandy, the man whose land D- Daniel had to sort of be baptized in order to get, right. has passed well, away. Well, never got it. He never, he was never able to buy it. Never even buy but he was able to get his pipeline for right. So Bandy has died, and Eli has a sort of scheme for buying the land and being able to, you know, take the, the oil from it. And Daniel says, sure, if you just say <laughs> that you are a false prophet and that God is a superstition. <laughs> and initially Eli resists and says, you know, I, I can never say that. I don't believe that. I'm not yeah. going to say that. Then he says, I want a $100,000 signing right. bonus. Right. If yeah. you give me the money, I'll say it. Mm-hmm. And of course, Daniel's like, okay, I'll give you the money if you say it. Mm-hmm. And then he has him repeat it many times with force and with meaning. And he says, I am a false prophet and God is a superstition. And this, and this is what I was talking about. This is the mirror of the scene mm-hmm. with him and the, the baptism, church. Right. They are both saying things that are true, mm-hmm. but it's just performative. Right. Like neither of them believes it, mm-hmm. but they're saying true things. Mm-hmm. And then Eli sort of breaks down and admits and says, I'm full of sin and things are not okay. I need money. God failed to alert me to the recent panic in the economy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm broke. And I need some money. Yeah. Uh, and that's when, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis gets his Oscar winning scene and tells Eli and spits it like literal spit coming out of his drool, coming out of his mouth as he's saying, you know, you're not the chosen brother. Paul was the chosen brother. Paul was the prophet. He was a smart one. You were just the afterbirth, which I need to find the time to use in my life to call somebody afterbirth. Because I feel like that's a fucking, that's a dig, man. And I got to use that one. But yeah, so he basically, you know, breaks Eli down yeah. to the bone marrow. Uh, and then there's a the whole drink your milkshake yeah. nonsense. And I am the third revelation. I'm the one that the Lord has chosen. Mm-hmm. And chases him around. And, and like, I... I would have been happier if the film had ended right there, actually, mm-hmm. with Eli spiritually broken. Mm-hmm. But then Daniel starts throwing bowling balls at yes. him and then... Beats him to death. Beats him to death with a bowling, with a bowling pin. pin. Which, again, that, that's full circle back to 2001. Mm-hmm. There are very deliberate shots where he's raising that bowling pin over his head and bringing it down mm-hmm. on Eli that is clearly meant to evoke that eight at the beginning of 2001. And then he just... What, he sits down and he says yeah the butler comes down and says hey you okay uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh daniel without even turning to look at him says i'm finished yeah and so and that's, that, the know, the that's the end of the movie okay thoughts analysis interpretation moral <laughs> what do you got for me uh i feel I, I feel like at the very least this should have been a four-hour movie because i feel like it skipped over a lot of stuff Mm-hmm. Coming into that that last time jump where H.W. has grown up and uh, Daniel's in the house mm-hmm. and Eli comes back, that last segment, it felt to me like watching the fourth season of a TV show after skipping seasons two and three. Hmm. All of the important relationships were never developed in the film. Mm-hmm. And it just, it made that ending feel unearned to me. So this is a 30-year rivalry at this point right. between Daniel and Eli. But we only saw the beginning of it. We mm-hmm. we only saw the very beginning of it. I don't know what the hell they've been doing in the intervening 20 years. It's just that relationship is just not as deep to me as I feel like it should have been mm-hmm. to earn that ending. 
And the same thing with his son. I mean, we barely saw that relationship. Yeah, it just didn't have the impact it was supposed to have, I Mm -hmm. think, for me. I mean, yeah, the only way that I can sort sort of make that make sense is, again, we know that Daniel doesn't have relationships. So I guess it makes sense that, like, that that work wouldn't be there because that work wasn't happening. There was no relationship building because that's not who Daniel was. But then why do I care, I guess is my question. Why am I supposed to care about any of this? Because it's an allegory about man and capitalism and God or something. Uh, Saying what? That capitalism corrupts everything. It seeps through the ground the way that oil does. I don't know. That seems a little banal. Man is to inherently me. greedy and inherently violent. Yeah, we know this. I mean, it's Upton Sinclair, so that's. Well, it isn't, though. I mean, that's the thing, <laughs> is that it's Paul Thomas Anderson. Right. And it's all just a little banal and just a little vague mm-hmm. to me, which is how I have felt about some of his other movies. Hmm. It's how I felt about The Master, which is the only one of his movies that I've actually written about. And it's my reaction was sort of the same as it was to this, which is that it's meticulously made, mm-hmm. the direction is gorgeous, the performances are good, although, I mean, to me, Philip Seymour Hoffman was as good good as everyone thinks Daniel Day-Lewis is. Mm. So I actually liked The Master better. But I got to the end of it and I was like, what was the point? Mm. I don't know what you're trying to say. And Mm -hmm. it's not that there needs to be a clear message, but it all seems way too simplistic for this kind of operatic crescendo of emotion that we get at the end of this movie. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it all seems kind of underdeveloped to me. I feel like Citizen Kane tells me things I didn't already know Mm -hmm. about human nature, about American capitalism, about American identity. I don't feel like this does. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, we don't have to go to Citizen Kane. If you want a work that deals with a lot of these same themes, that to me is worth a thousand times what this movie is worth, I would go to the TV series Deadwood. Mm. Which, I mean, and let's face it, Al Swearingen would (laughs) use fucking Daniel Plainview as a toothpick. But I think that as an origin story for the 20th century, that to me is so much more evocative than this movie is. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, comparing a 30-hour TV series to a a two-and-a-half-hour movie is not fair. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't, it just didn't work. I mean, obviously I didn't, I didn't hate the movie. No, no. But I'm not sure I would call it one of the great works of art of Mm -hmm. the 21st century so Mm -hmm. far. I'm just not sure there's a lot of there there. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if that comes down to having to build a story around a character that hates humanity. That eliminates a lot of the sort of narrative shortcuts that, you know, we tend to use, particularly in film when you only have an hour and a half or two hours to tell a story, you, you sort of use the relationships that a person has in order to to sort of build out who that person is and what's important to them. Mm-hmm. That's just not who Daniel is. So we have a character who doesn't talk much. He basically had that one conversation with his fake half-brother where he said, I hate everyone. That's that's almost the only conversation he has in right. the film that isn't performative. Right. It seems to be him honestly talking, not making a speech. Right. 
So, and then all the other sort of relationships insofar as they are actual relationships are, again, transactional business relationships. They weren't really personal relationships in that way. Mm. And so we don't get to know him. We don't, there's no flashback to a childhood where we figure out what, you know, we right. learn that he left home early, I think is what we uh, learned. Yes. Henry says mm. something about, like, I know you didn't get along with our father right. or something like that. And he basically says, yeah, I'm not going to talk about that. Right. Um, so it's like, so when you have a character that that is who they, so then it's just like, it's hard to sort of gain any sort of emotional hook there because there's nothing there to hook onto. And he's not, you know, the the idea of the sort of white male misanthrope is very, very common and is in a, a great many things across film and television. I mean, you like Breaking Bad and mm-hmm. Sopranos and Mad Men. Like, there's a whole cottage industry around that character, but they they were still sort of grounded in actual relationships that could help you sort of flush out who they were as people and what was important to them. And it was all rooted in something. It was rooted in an anger about, you know, mortality and what you felt you were owed. An anger about wanting to attain a social status that you knew you had to be someone else to. You know, so there right, was there's right. all, like these, you know, and with Citizen Kane, like there's these sort of great, very human, very vulnerable rootings that we don't know that Daniel has. Daniel just seems to be, I want money so that I don't have to be around anyone. We don't know why he doesn't want to be around anyone. We don't know something happened or anything like that so is he just an allegorical stand-in for american greed and american capitalism? greed and capitalism yeah, sure. soulless sure lacking empathy mm-hmm. uh corrupting everything it touches mm-hmm. i mean is that the level yeah. at which i'm supposed to read this movie i think so yeah i'm not into that <laughs> that doesn't do anything for me mm-hmm. And I mean, if that's that makes this a very cynical film, mm-hmm. because even if you look at the other side of the coin, the faith or religion, organized religion, it's not any better. No, it's everything is corrupted by capitalism. But I mean, it's not even a corruption. I mean, it would be a different movie and in some ways a more boring movie, a more traditional old fashioned movie. If Eli had started out as an idealist mm-hmm. and become corrupted through the, the introduction of mm-hmm. Daniel Plainview or the introduction of oil and money mm-hmm. into the equation. But I don't read Eli that way. I no, read Eli Eli's as a fraud from the start yeah, before he ever even meets mm-hmm. Daniel Plainview and before the oil wells start pumping. Mm-hmm. So that's not any better. Okay, let's let's try a rebuttal here. <laughs> this is David Denby in The New Yorker uh, in his Best Films of the Decade post. When the movie came out, the principal complaints against it were that the dominating figure of the oil entrepreneur Daniel Plainview doesn't develop as a character. True. That the movie is structurally ungainly. True. That its political and social allegories are tendentious. True. And that the last scene is sheer insanity. So we agree with all of that, I think. Mm -hmm. All these charges are true, Denby says, but they don't much matter. It's still an overwhelming experience, a blazing, astoundingly vivid chronicle of the twin rise of the oil business and evangelism in California. It begins in darkness, silence, and muck, and it creates an entire world out of earth, air, fire, wood, and human players who, at times, seem to be doing kabuki rather than naturalistic acting. The movie dislocates expectations, it offers dissonance rather than assonance, it makes most of our little realistic dramas look timid. Any of that convince you? No. No, me either. I guess I don't find it as brave a statement as I keep hearing. That might have been my biggest disappointment with it. I thought, I think I was expecting to say, okay, that's an impressive movie, it's not my kind of movie. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was that brave. Yeah. I didn't think it was as insane 
insane as everyone seems to think it is. Mm-hmm. I didn't see it belching fire and brimstone and damnation. Well, there was a literal, like, volcano of fire, but... Yeah, uh-huh. I ultimately didn't think that character was that interesting. Yeah. Like, I feel like I've seen better, more interesting versions of that character before. Mm-hmm. So I'm not clear on how he has become so iconic or so celebrated. Did you like it better than I did? I don't think so. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you watched it twice. I wouldn't have watched it again. Right. No, I did not. I really like the score. I watched it twice because I wanted to go back and look at it again, knowing... I didn't even know that much about the story or Mm -hmm. anything Mm -hmm. before we watched it the first time. So dealing with what was for me a kind of a the disappointment on the script level mm-hmm. knowing that i wanted to go back and watch it again and look at the cinematography and listen to the score and that kind of thing and the cinematography is great yeah no it's beautiful um the score is excellent the score is the best part of the movie i it didn't change my opinion yeah. about the the actual substance of the piece and it didn't change my opinion about daniel day lewis's performance <laughs> I'm not the only one who feels this way. I did find... There's not a lot of support out there, but I did find some. Okay. This is Peter Walker in The Guardian um, in an article entitled My Most Overrated Film. (laughs) And he talks about how, you know, everyone has proclaimed this a masterpiece. And he said, I'm sorry, everyone. It's a stinker. And that stink emanates almost entirely from one element. The bow-legged, squint-eyed, selic-mustached, fruity-voiced Daniel Plainview, as incarnated by modern cinema's greatest exponent of industrial-scale ham, Daniel Day-Lewis. The longer his career has progressed, the more heavily weighted with statuettes the Day-Lewis mantelpiece, the more he has become leaden, mannered, affected, a legend in his own ham-heavy lunchtime. Wow. So it's just me and this guy, apparently. Apparently. I didn't, I mean, he wasn't terrible. Terrible for me. Like I said, there were moments where he it felt like work. And again, that last scene in the, the bowling alley just gets more and more off the rails. But in the quieter moments, I think he's excellent. And again, that sort of first 15 to 20 minutes, I think, is actually a really great little short film. I do think that's the best part of the movie. That sort of says all these things that you need to say without all of the sort of ambiguity and... Sort of lack of development of the rest of the film. And I think the sort of bookend of the scene of the, the baptism and when he gets uh, Eli to say, you know, um, God is a superstition, I'm a false prophet. Uh-huh. I think those two scenes as sort of bookends to each other is powerful. And there's some interesting stuff going on there. But otherwise, yeah, I can sort of take or leave this movie. Let's leave it. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want to watch it in the first place, so... (laughs) Well, neither did I, and I'm feeling strangely vindicated by that. (laughs) That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Nakia, we need a palate cleanser, I think, after this week. Mm -hmm. And during this week, while we were recording, the great Aretha Franklin passed away. So let us celebrate her legacy with what may be her only film performance in John Landis's The Blues Brothers. How does that sound? I will only watch it for Aretha. <laughs> it's got 
If nothing else, it's got great music in it. Okay. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Follow us on Twitter at Free Range Critic. Leave a review for us on iTunes or send an email to Michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a movie that Nakia or I should watch <laughs> to make our lives complete. Until next time, remember, true love means making your partner watch movies they really, really don't want to watch. So I think, okay, if I'm going to be the unenthusiastic critic this week, then I think that puts the responsibility on you to advocate for the film. Oh, I won't be doing that. Which is the role I usually play. Yeah, I won't be doing And first of all, you fail at that role often. (laughs) So you never make a good case for why we are watching these movies. Because you ruin shit for me. Just the experience (laughs) of watching shit with you ruins it for me so by by the time we talk about it i'm disillusioned i help you see that harrison ford is garfield (laughs) i just no i don't spoil i i open your eyes people say that people have said to me like i feel like you should have put up a better defense of that movie and i'm like my spirit was crushed see you need to man the fuck up if you want me to watch see tell me why i'm watching this bullshit because i'm gonna tell you why i don't want to watch it That's on you, homie. You need to step your game up. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Let's go. Tell me why this is a good movie. And you never do. I am always right. I'm always, always right. (laughs) Always. You have a healthy self-esteem, don't you? I have a healthy self-esteem about shit I hate. Yes. I'm I'm very secure in things that I think are terrible.